Hey, thanks for being a faithful subscriber to our Sermon MP3s here at Lawson Heights Alliance Church. This is August 14, 2022, and we're still in our series called Worship 101. And this Sunday's message is entitled, Knowing Your Place in Worship. May God bless you. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. What have we made it? When it's all about you, all about you, Jesus. You know, getting to the heart of worship is really what this series is about. Back in the early 1900s, A.W. Tozer, perhaps the most famous pastor in Canada and the United States, also an alliance pastor, once said this. He said, it certainly is true that hardly anything is missing from our churches these days, except the most important thing. We are missing the genuine and sacred offering of ourselves and our worship to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder what he would say today. That's back in the early 1900s. That's a long time ago. I wonder what he would say to us. On the first Sunday of our series, we learned from the account of the woman at the well that when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, of course, because of the cross and the resurrection, The Spirit enabled true worshipers to be able to worship God in the Spirit and in truth. No longer would true worshipers be restricted to worship the Lord at a specific place, like at a a mountain or at a temple, as the Jews and the Samaritans did. Jesus changed all that. And yet, for as much as Jesus and the Holy Spirit has changed worship for us, many of us still don't know what it is and how to engage in it except to come to church on Sundays. We claim to have a personal relationship with God, and yet we don't know how to worship Him between Sundays. So I think it's essential that we come to discover our place in worship, lest we prove Tozer's evaluation of the church to be true in our generation. Through the summer, I've been reading through the life of King David and his reign in the books of Samuel and Chronicles and the Psalms, And in Psalm 103, I kind of hit a place where I went, this is impressive to me. Psalm 103, David, who is God's appointed king over Israel, uses three images as a way of understanding his place in worship. And these three elements, these themes, if you will, come up over and over again throughout the Psalms, throughout all of Scripture. So I know that they are vitally important to us knowing our place in worship too. They are God's throne, God's kingdom, and God's dominion. We'll read the whole psalm first, but then I'll emphasize the last four verses and then swing around again back to verse 1. Are you there with me in Psalm 103? As always, we put it up here on the overhead, but I do encourage you, please bring your own Bibles. Uh, Even if it's a nice big Bible like this, you should see Carl's Bible. It's a big, massive, leather-bound Bible over here. If he can carry his, you can carry yours. And there's also Bibles in the pew. If you don't have a Bible, please take one. We'd love for you to have it. Are you ready? Psalm 103. It says, of David. So this is his psalm. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion who satisfies your desires with good things 
so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known to his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He did not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. Its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. Sometimes we just need to speak to our own souls to release it to the worship of God. And Lord, as we ponder these verses, as we look in this psalm and we hear through song the worship of David, we reflect on our own worship of you. And we see in certain pictures throughout this psalm certain things that you require of us if we are to Come to you in worship. Essentially, you want us to know our place in worship and in the world so that we'll come respectively and humbly before you to experience you and to know you and to give you the worship you are due. And so, Lord, as we walk through these pictures today, allow our hearts to receive them And allow them to prompt us to the actions that your worship requires. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. And God's people said, Amen. The first image David gives is a way for us to establish a proper vision of God before worship can even happen is this. Number one, God's throne is the picture. God's throne pictures or even prompts my need to be his subject. Verse 19 says, the Lord has established his throne in heaven. There's so much already in this psalm that prompts us to praise, but in the last verses, David distills it all down to the most important. David is elevating the Lord, Yahweh in the Hebrew, as inhabiting the space, a space higher than the realm of humanity. It's the realm of heaven. And it is from there in that heavenly realm that God reigns over all. And even though David is a king, 
And he has shown himself to be a great king in the known world, militarily, socially, politically. He reigns supreme over the kingdoms of men. But to David, David knows his place. And he still bows before Yahweh's throne. Because he understands that it is greater than his own throne. Because heaven is God's throne. David understands it to mean that Yahweh's reign is universal in its scope. Because the heavens encircle the earth. Because God is in heaven, David understands that his, his scope, the Lord's scope of reign is not only universal, it's also eternal. And by fixing his throne in heaven, David is declaring the eternality of God's rule. It is a reign that has always been, always will be, and will never wear out. It is a rule that has no beginning. It has no end. It is eternal. And he has no competitors to that throne ever, anywhere, at all. David appreciates that Yahweh's reign was was before his. It is better than his, and it will outlast his. And so he has no problem bowing to his rule. I'd like you to close your eyes for a moment. I want to read another psalm, and I want to see for you what comes to mind as you read it. Psalm 93, verses 1 to 2. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established firm and secure, and his throne is established long ago. You are from eternity, God. Are you envisioning God? When that was read, Psalm 103 and 93, for that matter, are songs. They're musical. They're meant to be sung. And King David wrote his psalm as an expression of his own heart and his own passion for the reign of God in his own life. And they were meant to evoke an emotional response, first for himself before Yahweh's throne, and then in hearing anybody else's hearing and singing of them. During our worship services, we sing songs of praise as well. They too are meant to evoke an emotional response for us, guide us towards certain ideas and thoughts of God, and a way for you and I to to connect with God for sure, but also to help you and me properly find and declare our place before the throne of God. Do you know your place before the Almighty? Are you willing to declare your place And your posture before him and his kingship? And as we sing our songs, will you allow the words to fill your minds with images that draw you closer to him in worship? Like like the old song, Majesty. I just kind of had it running through my head all week. I don't know. We never hear it on the radio anymore or on Christian uh, uh, things. But it's it's a pretty simple song. Join me in it if if you remember it. Majesty, worship His majesty. Unto Jesus be all glory, honor, and praise. Majesty, kingdom authority. Flow from His throne unto His own, His anthem raise. So exalt, 
Lift up on high the name of Jesus. Magnify, come glorify Christ Jesus our King. Majesty, worship His majesty. Jesus who died, now glorified, King of all kings. You can't help but raise your voice and exalt the Son of God through a song like that, can you? And when we gather on Sunday mornings to worship God, don't be afraid to allow yourself to enter into His presence with song. Don't be afraid to allow yourself the freedom to come under his, under his reign and to declare it aloud. And don't let your body be ashamed to reflect that submission that you have before him. We're not just here to sing songs. We're here to corporately encounter the majesty that is in heaven, Right? And songs help us do that for sure, but unless you and I engage with the words of the song, it ain't worship. It ain't worship to just sing songs. And that's why, to me, the style of the song, unless it's country, of course, just kidding, sort of. You know what happens when you play country music backwards, right? You get your dog back. You get your car back, you get your wife back, you get your house back, all those things. So for me, I've never really liked country music. I know lots of people do, and that's cool. But for me, the style of the music isn't really what's important. I can worship the Almighty singing with a Reba McIntyre song if it's heard on the radio. I can get past the whining twang of, of country music because it's not about the song. Or the artist. And you know what? Really, it's not even about me. It's definitely not about me. If the song magnifies the majesty in heaven, I can connect with it. I can lift my voice and my hands to exalt my king because it's about him. It's not about me. And the only way it ever becomes about me is if I'm refusing to worship God just because it's not my personal preference of music. See, even though David was the most powerful king in the world, he understood that God was the ultimate king of his life and of his world. And he himself was a Lord's subject, even him. And he wasn't afraid to bow before his king. And because he understood his place before the Lord, he was not afraid to demonstrate audibly, lyrically, and even physically his humility before the Lord, even in front of his subjects. Such demonstrations would be seen by any other king as a sign of weakness, but not for David. David didn't care what people thought. And when you are at the feet of the everlasting sovereign, you learn your place in worship, don't you? And what others think of you matters not. Let me give you an example, one I love from Scripture. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 47. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, 
he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood beside him at his feet, weeping, she began to weep. She began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who it is that's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he replied. Two people owned money, owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them do you think he loved more? Which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt to be forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little." I think if you're paying attention, you get the point of that story. That woman, unwelcomed by those most holy people in Israel, did not stop kissing the feet of Jesus. She wasn't invited to this party, but she came. Because, see, she knew her place in worship. And she went away forgiven. But you know what? The blessing of forgiveness wasn't the point of this woman. The anointed one was Jesus. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, adoring Jesus was her point in being there. Is that your point in worship? Here on Sunday or alone in your living room or even now live streaming? You know, in the Canadian Evangelical Church, we have become very dignified in our worship. So much so that I think we're maybe too afraid to kiss the feet of Jesus. We're too afraid to bend the knee, raise an exalting hand, or submit ourselves to Him by bowing. And sometimes we judge others that we see in the room who are doing that, and we think maybe they're getting a little too carried away. My fellow worshipers, I know you want to experience the full blessing of God in your lives. You come here hoping for that. It's why you do your devotions. You're seeking God's blessing on your week. But you know what? I'll be quite frank. Until we stop making our worship, or whatever it is we call this, about getting a blessing from God, and instead making it about ensuring that God knows by our posture that we submit to Him and adore Him. Until that alone is why we come. Our worship will be empty and it will be useless. 
Friends, you have to know your place in worship. And you have to enjoy being there. Just for the sake of the experience of knowing Jesus better. Does God know you by that posture? God's throne. It's a picture of my need to be his subject. But there's a second picture in this passage. Number two, God's kingdom is the other picture. God's kingdom pictures his right to rule my life. Psalm 103, verse 19, second part. His kingdom rules over all. How many? I didn't hear you very well. I'm short of hearing. All. There you go. There you go. What is God's kingdom? Well, first of all, let me tell you what God's kingdom is not. God's kingdom is not a geographical area. And God's kingdom is also not a political entity. John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus, if you remember, is on trial before Pilate, the Roman governor to Judea. And he's asked a question by Pilate. And Jesus answers and says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is from another place. So God's kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. It's a heavenly nature. It's spiritual. It doesn't mean it's not physical in some sense or tangible, but it is not worldly. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20, Paul also explains it perfectly. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Dunamis, power. Not political power, but spiritual power. God's kingdom was not established by diplomatic talks or bargaining between two or more parties. God's kingdom rule over all people and all things is simply because it's within his power to do so. In fact, you and I don't have anything to say about it because of who and what we are before the king of heaven. And the sooner a person gets to come to grips to that, that with Yahweh's position and power over all creation and over themselves, the sooner one can truly experience and worship him. You know, I've been a Christian for 39 years. Some of you way longer. I've been in pastoral ministry for 31 of those years. I didn't, come, I didn't become a Christian until I was 17 years of age. And my faith came out of a real wrestling with God over who would control my life. And I remember clear as day that my conversion wasn't just accepting Jesus as my Savior. It became very clear to me, it was told to me, that when I come to Jesus, He also has to become my Lord. For me... Coming to Jesus meant stepping out of the kingdom of this world to which I was already happily a member of and a subject of and stepping fully into the kingdom of God. Which scared me. But I stepped. Way back when I was in grade four, the Gideons came to my school. Anybody remember the Gideons coming to their schools? Giving them a little Bible, a little red New Testament. I remember bringing it home and not wanting to read it because I knew nothing about the faith or Jesus, but not wanting to throw it out either. I just kind of threw it in my underwear drawer, actually. And there it stayed for a very long time till the Lord delivered me from the power of darkness and he delivered me into the kingdom of light almost a decade later. 
And I went home after talking to a guy about Jesus and about what needed to happen in my life, about giving, be, allowing Jesus to become my Savior and my Lord. I went home, and just like that little Gideon's Bible says, Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14, God has delivered us from the power of darkness and he has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. I knew right from the start that, it w- that I wasn't just asking Jesus into my heart. I wasn't just promising to clean up my act and go to church. I was transferring out of and into another kingdom. I was in the kingdom ruled by the powers of this dark world, the devil, Until God rescued me, delivered me, safely transferred me, transported me into the kingdom of his dear son. Some Christians are never aware of that step into a different kingdom. Many believers come to Jesus because, well, some come because they couldn't fix the problems that were in their lives. And so last resort, they made a deal with Jesus. Jesus, if you'll help me, I'll try to help you by becoming a Christian. That's how I first tried to come. Or they came because they were unfulfilled and they were told that Jesus would bless their life if they would just give their life to him. Or maybe they came because one day they're hoping to get to heaven and Jesus seems to be the ticket. Rarely do I hear people talking about giving up the kingdom of darkness for the kingdom of light. Probably because we're still so reluctant to do so. Billy Graham once said, too many people want to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. And it's like straddling a fence. You are not happy either way, so declare yourself for Christ, he says. In Revelation, Jesus once warned a church, the church of Laodicea, and and I think the warning is still apt for today and for Christians and for churches alike. John writes this, chapter 3, verse 14. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, church, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Worshippers of the ruler of creation, if we are lukewarm about our position in Christ's kingdom, if we are living with, with one foot in the, in the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the world, and trying to live with one foot in the kingdom of heaven, then really we're still living for the world. We're not really living for the worship of God and the worship He deserves. And you know what? We risk losing everything. Philippians 3, verse 18 says, for, I have, for as I have often told you before, Paul says, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he's talking to some in the church. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. 
And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. See, biblically, worship is supposed to shape your worldview, not the other way around. Not the, it's supposed to shape it. But a worldview is an assumption of a collection of beliefs that govern and condition our perception of reality. Our first orientation of the world is to see self as number one. And that self-centeredness shapes how we view and act in the world. And it also shapes how, and, and how we view God and our relationship with Him. Our worship is either of self or of the one true God. See, you and I will live and worship by that worldview that we're exposed to most. What worldview are you exposing yourself to most? So until you and I have made the full transference from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, we will love and long for the voices of the world that promise to satisfy ourselves most. And with that worldview guiding us, We will only like God and we will only submit to God when it's in our own best interest to do so. We will not worship him solely because he's worthy of it. As Paul says, the citizens of this world long to satisfy appetites shaped by the evils of the world. But citizens of heaven long to be satisfied by Jesus, their king. Not, Not even the blessings of Jesus, but only Jesus. Only he satisfies. A.B. Simpson, the founder of our denomination, wrote a poem that became a worship song. The song is called Himself. And these are the first four verses. Once it was the blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was the feeling, now it is His word. Once His gifts I wanted, now the giver alone. Once I sought for healing, now Himself alone. There are four other verses equally as profound as those. But it describes a turning point. A turning point in the heart of a worshiper. From seeking God for his blessings to seeking God for himself alone. The next two verses of David's song beckon the angels and even the divine counsel to worship the Lord Yahweh. Verse 20. Praise the Lord, you his angels. You mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts. You, his servants, who do his will. But now in verse 22, David reorients the need to worship Yahweh to everything and everywhere that God's rule reigns. Verse number three. God's dominion pictures my part in his cosmos. God's dominion is the picture And it pictures my part in his cosmos. Verse 23. Praise the Lord all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. David is calling all of creation, all of God's works to give praise to him. And then he he personalizes it. Praise the Lord, O my soul. God's dominion seek, speaks of God's being, his, his ability to have dominion. But not only dominion over David, but over all the cosmos. 
over all creation. The word dominion, according to Webster's, is defined as supreme authority, absolute ownership. So God's dominion over creation, although established by his incredibly great creative power, it is not enforced through brute strength alone, but also by his own innate authority and ownership of it. Listen to Ephesians 1, verse 19. And how surpassingly great is the power working in us who trust him. It works with the same mighty strength he used when he worked in the Messiah to raise him from the dead and seat him at his right hand in heaven. Far above every ruler, authority, power, dominion, or other name that can be named either in this world or in the world to come. Also, he has put all things under his feet and made him head over everything for the church, which is his body, the full expression of him who fills all creation. Do you get the image? Do you see the image of God's dominion there in the scriptures in your mind's eye? Is your heart stirred to worship him when you hear and read these things? If not, you're a bit spiritually dead inside. When all is taken into account, boil life down to its lowest common denominator. We are God's domain. He owns us. That's our place in the cosmos. Oh, we can fight our whole life about it, but at the end of the argument, we are His. He created us, and He has created us for His purposes and His divine passion and pleasure. And that's your place in the cosmos. Some people don't like that. That this is the relationship that they have with God. They don't like to be under the sole ownership of God alone. And they will twist and shout and complain and protest and deconstruct their faith. And when they realize that they can't change their place in the cosmos, you know what they end up doing? They end up trying to recreate God in a way that pleases them. And that makes them Lord of their own world, and they're okay with that. They will reject all that they view as under God's dominion. They will reject the Bible. They'll reject the church. They'll reject God's morality. They will reject God's male and female design. They will call good evil, and they will call evil good. All in favor of worshiping the things that God created rather than the Creator. And we talked about, as we talked about earlier, they want to live with one foot in the kingdom of this world, which is really the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of evil power. They want to live with one foot in the kingdom of the world and also with one foot in the kingdom of God. But even one pinky toe in the world shows that you're trying to escape God's dominion running from his supreme authority and his divine absolute ownership of you. And that's why David declares, praise the Lord all his works everywhere in his dominion. Where is that? That's everywhere. There's nothing left out. And, he says, praise the Lord, O my soul. True worship is knowing your place in the cosmos in relationship to the king. 
in his kingdom under his domain. Settling the issue of God's right to rule in your life, to fully enter into his kingdom, shutting the door once and for all in the kingdom of darkness and saying, I will not return, not even for a moment, is not only necessary for your personal worship of the Almighty, is also necessary for the church to be the body of Christ in the world that he came to save. So, next Sunday. Next Sunday you have a choice. You can either come here to worship to get something from God, or you can come to worship to give something to God. Do you understand the difference now? Tomorrow you have a choice. You can go about your week living for yourself, or if you know your place before God, you will prioritize spending time every day at the feet of Jesus, anointing him as your king, showing him by your posture that you are his and in his kingdom and under his dominion everywhere you go. Here's a practical way for you to do that. You know this little diagram. This is called My Life Network. In the center is Christ in me. This is, this is how you are related. Just read Ephesians 1. This is how you are now related to God in Christ. This is how you are allowed to approach the throne of grace with boldness. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. Right? This is your place in the cosmos now in, in Jesus. But there's a whole sphere of activity and relationships that you're a part of every day. Monday to Sunday. And repeat There's places like your interests and hobbies, your family, your friends, your work, your church, your world. It's quite a broad sphere of influence, I know. But you have a choice every day when you wake up in the morning. A choice to choose that is your dominion or Christ's. And you can worship God respectfully then if it's the latter. And to do that, why don't you try spending time? I have these, those little cards up here if you want to take one home, if you don't have one already. Spend some time when you get up in the morning and look at that little circle in the middle, Christ in you, and say, Lord Jesus, I acknowledge you as my king. I am in your kingdom, and I live under your domain. No matter where I go in this life of mine, this is, my life is in yours, and it will not be anything else today. I will worship you everywhere that I go. Be with me so that I can do that. Christ in me. Makes sense. It's pretty simple. But it's going to take some intention on your part. A willingness to bow the knee and humble your heart and come before Jesus to wet his feet with your tears, your humility, to wipe them with your hair, to get into God's presence to worship him as he deserves. Let us not be like the Pharisees. Instead, let us proclaim like David. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. And praise the Lord, O my soul. Let's worship and let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you, Lord, for the great I am that you are. You are everything you need us to be, but more importantly, you are everything you are. You are most high. You are God over all. You are the beginning and the end, the alpha, the omega, the creator, the sustainer, the finisher of all things. 
You were here from all eternity and you will be here forever in eternity. And you reign supreme. And Lord, today we humble ourselves before you. We open our hearts to you. We worship you for you are worthy and we are not. So help us, Lord, to change our orientation every day. Help us to be aware of when we're trying to step into the kingdom or at least even being influenced to, be, to step into the kingdom of this world. And help us, Lord, to reclaim our, our place in the kingdom of God before your throne forever.